0: Amen. You can have a seat. Our kids can head up to be with our team in Redemption Kids. And uh, as you are grabbing a seat, you can also grab your Bible or turn on your Bible app on your phone uh, to the book of Revelation. That's the last book in the Bible. Uh, we'll be in chapter 2 starting in verse 12 today. So if you're using one of these Bibles uh, that we have there when you enter, uh, you can turn to page uh, 1029. 1029. And uh, that's where we'll be uh, hanging out this morning. Well, um, let me welcome you to the gathering of Redemption Hill Church. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here, um, and we love coming together every week because we expect that this is not just a routine. Uh, this is a these are moments where we get to meet with the God of the universe, the God who made us, and the God who has saved us and offers us salvation through Jesus Christ. So uh, every Sunday when we come, we seek to come with expectation uh, because we believe God is real and Jesus proved that when he was raised from the dead. And so I hope that you're excited to receive from him and to be changed because our God is that good uh, and he loves us that much. So um, what I want to do is I want to read the letter that Jesus has for this uh, church in in an ancient city called Pergamum. Uh, And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Okay, so let's uh, let's read this together. Revelation uh, chapter two, reading. I'm going to read for us verses 12 through 17. Okay, here we go. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. And practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together again. Father, we come to these words of Christ, and we just want to pause for a moment, and recognize that these are His words. These are Your words that You've given to us. To not receive lightly, but to receive with a gravity, with a weight, with a seriousness. If we... We're having a conversation with you, God, uh, that you have spoken to us. There's no greater conversation that we could ever have than to hear your voice and then to respond to you in in prayer and praise and, and with a life that is totally given over to you. And God, as we think about what Jesus is saying here and how he's commending the church at Pergamum, and yet he's correcting and confronting some things, Lord, we just even want to look within in the mirror of our lives and individually and even as a church, Lord, that we would see that perhaps there are some ways where we too uh, need to be corrected as well as be commended. And so, Lord, would you give us ears to hear, not just physically, because we could Uh, hear a couple thousand words from a guy on a stage and assume that everything's cool and we've got it all together and we can miss what actually you're wanting to speak to the the ears of our hearts. And so God, open our eyes and open our, our ears today so that we would see and so that we would listen and so that we would respond to who you are. Every single one of us. Every single one. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go ahead and claim that spring is here. Anybody just, any, anybody with me just want just to, just, we're just going to claim that here this morning. I mean, the sun is out. If you haven't looked at the forecast... Not that it ever changes in New England, but we have, you know, sunshine in the forecast for about seven out of the next eight days, all right? Just trust me. Don't pull up your app. You know, I know you're tempted right now. Um, So, uh, and what's that? The Red Sox are coming. Thank you, Nancy. We're keeping our priorities straight here at Redemption Hill Church. We love the Sox. That's right. 2018 World Series champion, World yeah, Red Sox, thank you. Spring, spring is coming, it's spring training, it's, the sun is out. The leaves will be popping out of the trees and flowers will be blooming. Don't you love, we love spring in Boston. I mean, it's, it's the, the one time of the year on that warmest day when people actually are polite around here, you know? It's just, it's an amazing, an amazing season. And what I, one of the, the, the clearest and most hopeful signs of spring that I've grown to love in my almost 10 years here in Boston is when you're coming out of Kendall, MIT, and you're coming out from underground on Longfellow Bridge, and you look up on a sunny day, and what do you see? You see dozens of sailboats, right? Just, just scattered across the water, moving, floating, and it's just a a sure sign that that spring has come. And I want you to think about this picture this morning of of, of sailboats on the water. Um, I don't know how to sail. In fact, I mean, you know, we're not going anywhere, so I was even thinking about this you know, uh, this weekend, like, I could take up a new hobby, like, I'm sure Marsha would be a little concerned about me going overboard, Um, but, you know, life jacket and everything, Charles River's a little cold, but I would probably survive, Um, so I'm just thinking, you know, maybe I should take up this, I mean, it just looks exciting, and and you see what's going on as they they move on the water, and, uh, you know, again, I've never, I've never sailed, but I, I think, you know, doesn't take a lot of uh, experience or wisdom to understand that a sailor's greatest asset is also his greatest challenge. And what is that? Wind, right? The the wind that goes into those sails is what propels uh, him or her to their destination, right? Where they're going, where they want to go on the sailboat. And yet we know that Winds change directions, right? So, uh, you know, they have to fight the changing winds and maneuver and change the direction of the sails in order to stay on course. And what a metaphor, what a picture of the Christian life. We raise the sails of our hearts and we say, God, blow your wind By the way, if you didn't know, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3, he compares the Spirit to wind. Acts chapter 2, wind comes in and empowers them, fills them with the Holy Spirit. So wind is a metaphor for the Spirit of God blowing wind into our life, propelling us forward where God wants to take us. And yet, that's not the only wind we encounter in this life. Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, that that there will be uh, waves and every wind of doctrine, so many different teachings, so many different philosophies and worldviews, so many different practices and ways of living life out of those teaching philosophies and worldviews that will seek to knock us off course. Surely you know what I'm talking about. And what what happens? What happens is that you know it's not like we're, we're like we're seeking to worship, or we're seeking to walk with God, or we're seeking to to have that wind of the Holy Spirit fan the flame into our hearts and keep the wind in ourselves focused, moving forward where God wants us. And yet, as those di- uh, multi-directional winds come, what happens is that all of a sudden, just very subtly, right, just very in a very mild manner, uh, we start to kind of just. Get off course by a couple of degrees, right? And then those couple of degrees, when they're not attended to and we're not able to correct course, then those couple of degrees become a couple of more degrees and a couple of more degrees and a couple of more degrees to where a little compromise, a little compromise starts to become a major issue in our lives. And so, the central, the central message that Jesus uh, is speaking, I think, here to the, the church at Pergamum and consequently to us today is this: don't compromise. Do not compromise. You will be tempted. You will live in a, in, a, in a place where you're going to, to, to have these different challenges coming against the, my wind in your life. And so stay focused. Be intentional. Live this out in the ways that I have called you to live. And so as we look at this this letter, this little letter, the the, the key idea, the key message this morning is to not compromise in our commitment to Christ. Do not compromise in your commitment to Christ. And, And we get some principles and some lessons and some encouragements as we move through this letter as to how we can stay faithful, how we can stay committed and not compromise in our commitment to Christ, all right? So the first encouragement I have for you is this, first of four, is this, all right? Number one, don't compromise when facing spiritual opposition, all right? Don't compromise when facing spiritual opposition. We've talked about this each of the past two weeks. Jesus begins every letter with these two words, I know, I know. He's going to do it four more times after today. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. He knows what's going on. Usually, it's about uh, what, what's happening within a person and then this group of people known as a church, church at Ephesus, church at, um, at uh, yeah, I forgot last one, Smyrna, thank you, there's seven, coming some slime. Um, so the church at Smyrna, now the church at Pergamum. I know what's going on, but, but, but here he says, I know your situation. His focus is first on their context. And, and he says, I know where you dwell." And if he just paused just for a moment as Bostonians, it's almost like just the pride that we have in our city. It's almost as if we can hear dirty water playing in the background, right? Come on, you know that song. You might not know the title, but you know that. Oh, Boston, you're my home. Dun, 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 dun. Come on, Red, Red Sox. Nancy knows that song. We play it after every win, every Bruins win. Come on. Hey, Nancy, you're going to mess up my sermon illustrations, all right? Nah. I love some Neil Diamond, too. Um, so, so, so we just we take pride, like even as, even as I drive around with my kids, you know, just to build a sense of like, this is where God has brought us. We love our city. Uh, Parker can tell you, I would used to chant, you know, where are we from? You know, just driving through, where are we from? And then I taught my girls to say it like this, you know where? And then we all say it together, Method. <laughs> we love our city, but Jesus' words to Pergamum' were not so encouraging. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he says a couple of good things about how they're living where Satan's throne is. And then he bookends it at the end of verse 13, and he says where Satan dwells. I mean, he is emphatic in terms of the the spiritual climate of the city of Pergamum. Satan has set up shop in this city. Why would he say this? Well, scholars would tell us that uh, in the ancient city of Pergamum, uh, there was a, a shrine to the healing god, Asclepius. And and you would know just from seeing medical symbols that doctors still wear today that the rod of Asclepius is is entwined with what? Two serpents, two snakes. The serpent being representative of our our adversary, our enemy, Satan himself. But it was not only that, but not only this worship, this false worship of the healing god Asclepius, but then also... Pergamum was the center of the Roman imperial cult. And so what that means is uh, they were the first city to to build a temple in honor of uh, Caesar Augustus so that he would be worshiped in their land. And so false worship was rampant in so many ways. And Jesus is saying that the influence of Satan is, is all too real. It's all too real there in Pergamum. Uh, His work was alive and well, including the persecution of Christians even to the point of death, as we see here with this brother named Antipas in verse 13. And so I just want to ask you this morning, do you understand? Do you realize we are in a spiritual battle We have an enemy, and he does not play nice. Satan is God's enemy, and if we're on God's team, he's our enemy. Ephesians 6 makes this so plain. Listen, listen to these words, words of instruction, even in the spiritual battle. Uh, Paul writes, finally be strong. You need to know this chapter, by the way. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. You just need to highlight, underline every word and keep coming back to them because, quite frankly, this is where we live day by day. Yes, even in method. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood where our mind goes first. Oh, they. Oh, she. Did you hear what he? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you you believe these words? Do you believe them? C.S. Lewis talks about it in his book, Screwtape Letters, a book that, that highlights and accentuates the reality of the spiritual battle that we face. He opens his book with a little preface, and he, he says that Christians uh, typically make one of two great errors, equal and opposite errors. Um, they either um, like totally ignore the demonic realm and have the minds of materialist, in other words, like those that maybe are so scientific, hello Boston, right, that like we don't even believe in the supernatural at all, or the opposite error is that we like can't get the demonic off our mind. There's an an over excessive obsession about uh, demons popping up everywhere and influencing every little thing, every word that comes out of our mouth. But I would I would post to you even as we think about that that is, you know, we don't we don't want to be materialist if we're like really reading the Bible and believing it. And yet probably most of us would just kind of hear me say that and just say, okay, like, hey, I'm just gonna kind of live in this middle place, and I'm gonna like, even though I don't think about the demonica much or the influence of Satan in in, in my workplace or in my city or even in my home and how that can can look like and work in terms of warfare um, we, we probably don't have the inclination to kind of lean towards uh, this this other end but but I actually think like when you when you read the whole story of scripture from Genesis to revelation the serpent is right there in Genesis chapter uh, three right and, uh, two and three and and then he's right here bookending all throughout the book of Revelation and so many places in between. So I really believe that if we were to err on one side, we should err on the side of like, demons are real. There is spiritual opposition against us. Satan is our enemy. He wants to distract and destroy us. I mean, just, just think about the, the, the presence of of of, of the spiritual opposition that that we face. And you say, like, well, Tanner, what does this look like? Why are we so distracted? Why is it that so many Christians, maybe this isn't true for you or it's, it's, it's increasingly less true of you, I hope and pray, but why do so many Christians just live so distracted lives? 10.30 to 11.45, 12, you know, Jesus... Maybe a few minutes of prayer here and there, Jesus. And then we're all over the map at so many other times. Why is it that we get, just when when we're up against difficulty, that we get so discouraged, so weighed down, so pressed down to the ground? It's like, that's a weapon that Satan uses. He wants to discourage us. He wants to distract us. He wants us to give in to those same old... T- why do you keep going back to the same temptations? Oh. When you do, when you give in to the same temptation again and again and again, why is it that all of a sudden you don't feel like God loves you anymore? Like you, could, you can't show up on the next Sunday, you can't go to group, you can't pray, as if God stopped loving you just because you sinned once. Why is that? It's because we have an adversary who is described as our accuser. You're no good, you don't love God, you're worth nothing. Nothing. Satan can't take our life. That's why last week was so good. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We look Satan in the eye and we say, you can kill me, but you can't kill me. Don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch your soul. Jesus says this, and yet, even though he cannot take Uh, Take our, our salvation, touch our life in Christ, then what he wants to do is he wants to disrupt our fellowship with God, and he wants to render us ineffective as we seek to push forward the mission of God that God has given us. And so we must be alert. We must take up, what Ephesians 6 goes on to say, we must take up the whole armor of God. And when Paul starts talking about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and gospel shoes for your feet and a shield of faith and a sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, when he talks about these Six weapons that we are pieces of protection that we go fight the battle with. Which, oh, by the way, covering all things in prayer that weapon of prayer, that weapon of praise. Did you know praise is prayer just in exaltation to God? When we take all of these pieces of the armor of God, it's not just to stand firm, okay? I mean, it is to stand firm, and we see that here in Ephesians 6, Um, but, but, but it's not just to defend and resist. It's also to march forward and to take ground and say, this belongs to the kingdom of light. The kingdom of darkness is real. The kingdom of darkness has been winning for far too long in our city, in your workplace, perhaps in your home. We need just to get a little passionate and, and, dare I say, a little militant about it. We need to take up arms, not against flesh and blood, but against our enemy, against these forces, these demonic forces that want to keep us from living the life that God has for us. And so that's that's what this Lent season is all about. I mean, I mean, Lent, as we prepare for Easter and we we spend, maybe we're fasting from certain things to feast on Christ in in more substantial ways. It's it's all about drawing near for the purpose of, of living what God has called us to live. And that's how we fight our battles. That's how God fights the battles in our lives through us, for us. That's right. So I hope we're just kind of convinced that like sleepy prayers, sleepy songs, sleepy time with God is not going to get the war won. We need to fight. We have an enemy. We are faced with spiritual opposition. But then the spiritual opposition then surfaces in the culture in which we live. So the second encouragement as we think about not compromising is not just compromising when we face spiritual opposition, but it's also to not compromise when we're pressured by the culture in which we live. And let me just show you how this works. The Bible talks about how Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the God that is working, ruling in this age. God, Satan doesn't have ultimate authority that belongs to God, as, as, as uh, I love how pastors or scholars have talked about, like, God, Satan is on God's leash, you know? If, if he's allowed to do anything, he's allowed to do it, Not because God has ultimate authority over Satan. And yet, uh, in this, this, this period of, of, of his rebellion and before God restores all things in Christ, um, he has a, a, an, an authority that he is able to exercise. And so, and so what this then this looks like is that um, his work starts to manifest itself in a culture that is opposed to God. And Jesus talks about this through this illustration in verses 14 and 15 and 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice Sexual immorality, what's going on here? Okay, Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament. Remember, we said Revelation keeps echoing the Old Testament again and again and again. Numbers 22, 23, 24, and the beginning of 25. What we have is the king of Moab named Balak. He is fearful of Israel, he's fearful of their size, he's fearful of their militaristic strength. And so he says, Hey, I need some help here. I'm going to go get one of the prophets of Israel who is willing to, guess what? compromise, and I'm going to see if he can just kind of call down a curse on his own people so I can get some safety here and uh, see if things can go a little bit better for me and my, my, my people. And so uh, Balaam comes in, and, and he, you know, Balak makes this request, and Balaam says, okay, let me see what I can do, and he inquires of God, and God calls down blessings on Israel and not curses, you know, and this happens like three or four different times. But, but yet, because uh, Balak had offered Balaam this reward of, yeah, money, um, Balaam says, hey, you know, this isn't working out so well, but here's what we can do. Just go send some of your most beautiful women into the territory of Israel, and let's see how that works out. And so the tactic shifted, which, by the way, this is what Paul talks about with Satan, that we're not unaware of his schemes. Don't think that he's just gonna get you with the same, uh, same old tricks. He's crafty. He's deceitful. And so as that happens, then the sons of Israel fall into idolatry and sexual immorality. And this seems to be what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is is about as well, as some kind of connection here between Balaam and Balak and and the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. He says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And it's like, well, what does this have to do with Rome? Well, again, in this first century context, this was the the center of the Roman imperial cult, who, again, as I said, they, they, they demanded that people worship Caesar but not only that, when they had parties to worship and celebrate Caesar in their city, these parties would often divulge and degenerate into drunken parties where sexual immorality started to take place. So what's going on here is, is basically maybe the Nicolaitans were, were encouraging like a form of syncretism, and that just means that you take uh, one, uh, you know, religious uh, system, belief, and practice, and you just kind of merge it in with another religious belief system and practice, and you just kind of like, hey, worship Jesus, but Caesar too. You yeah? know? Like, 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 do your best to live according to what God has said, but, you know, just do little a little... little Sexual morality on the side, a little idolatry, you know, God won't, God won't mind. And yet we know that God says, I won't share my glory with another. When you, when you come to me and you know who I am and you have this vision of me, this awestruck vision of, of, of my glory and my holiness and my perfections, that you know that there is truly no other God, that all other gods are false. So worship me and worship me alone. As Elijah said to the people of Israel when he was fighting the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, how long, we need to hear this question, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Because you and I both know We don't live in Pergamum, but we live in Boston. And and maybe the idols don't look the same. Maybe they do. We certainly see sexual morality in in our culture and just a a deviation from God's sexual ethic in so many ways in our culture as we've highlighted so many times in our church. So it's, it's worship Jesus, but worship your job too. Value what Jesus thinks about you, but oh, don't forget about, man, it's really important to, you know, what they think about you in the workplace, to seek their approval, to to, to build such a reputation that that all of a sudden you're so much more concerned about what people think of you than what God thinks of you. Don't be content with your possessions. Look Look at how much they have. Want more. Go after More. We hear these messages through the media, in the institutions we work for, and we see them in the lives, and we hear them in the lives of our friends. And all of a sudden, what happens is we start questioning our own convictions. We start to dabble in the places and the practices where Jesus would not be found. And all of a sudden, the degrees of our course have been thrown off through a small compromise, another compromise. And then all of a sudden, we're not really walking with God like we used to. I think what we need is a... Is, is what uh, Ed Welch talked about at the anger conference last week. So good just to be reminded. And here again, we need to have a zero-tolerance attitude when it comes to the sinfulness of our hearts. He was specifically talking about anger and how it's not just hot anger that manifests itself in a loud kind of physical, you know, anger towards someone, but also cold anger that is just frustrated with, and we dr- withdraw, we pull away from people. And, and, and Jesus is saying, zero-tolerance. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, but let there not be a hint, a hint of sexual immorality be named among you. Wow, so different from our culture, so backwards, so weird according to the world and yet we know that it is the wisdom of God and the power of God and where life is truly found. So don't compromise when you face spiritual opposition. Don't compromise when you are pressured by the culture. Just write down Romans 12, 1 and 2. I don't have time to get into it. I wish I did. Maybe I'm just real quick. Don't be conformed. I'm just going to go there. Don't be conformed by the pattern of this world. the, The conformity is being pressed in. The culture is trying to press us in. He says, don't be conformed by the pattern of this world, the pressure of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds as it comes through this book so that you can then offer your bodies as a living sacrifice every single day, holy and acceptable to God. Now, point three. Don't compromise when others do. Don't compromise when others do. We see this this juxtaposition, this contrast between Antipas and the faithful and some who hold the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Did you see that? We're talking about this, Redemption Hill. This is what we're talking about. In the same church. In the same church. And we would be foolish not to think that this is how it works in any and every church. Some who are super committed to Christ, but then others who start to compromise. And what happens? Well, let me just give you a few thoughts on this, a few considerations of how this, how this works, okay? Um, number one, we need to remember the power of we. Remember our vision for this year is why we leave it up in the corner of the slides every week. Okay. Um, the power of we says that God has called us together to unity and we live together to help one another journey in Christ, right? So we're committed to one another like family. And the Christ in you stirs up the Christ in someone else. But guess what? So does the Christ less. So does the Christ less. When, when we fail to live like Christ and we display fruit in our lives, works of the flesh that is Christ-less, that can also stir up the christ in someone else. Dare I say, when we live in such a way that identifies more with the kingdom of darkness and the demonic than the kingdom of light. the demonic can begin to perhaps hold sway, not, not possess, but, but, but influence more our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we need to remember the power of we, both positively, which is where we focus, at redemption, all right, but also negatively too. But then secondly, Don't miss the fact, okay, that that the only only reason we have a personal responsibility here, okay, um, the the Bible would teach us that we only compromise because we want to compromise. So this, like, whole bed about the devil made me do it, it does not stand. The devil has influence, and the devil influences culture, but the devil can't touch our soul, he can't make us disobey God. So, so it's only because we have sinful desires that we respond to the temptations around us. And so we need to take personal responsibility and we need to understand, and this is actually very encouraging and good news, that we don't have to compromise. We don't have to say yes when we're tempted and with all of the things that are swirling around us. We are without excuse. We are empowered in Christ. Sin does not have Romans. We doesn't have dominion over us any longer. Be free. Live in the victory of Christ. Let some chains be broken of compromise here today. Let's live different. I gotta tell you, it's been a rough week in my house. It's been a rough week. And I don't dismiss the fact that It's the week that I'm talking about where Satan's throne dwells. But I'm just saying, guess what? You're still going to get exposed here today. Still going to get, do you hear me? doesn't make me special. doesn't make me super filled with the Holy Spirit or whatever. But it's just like we can't compromise. We can't back down. We keep fighting. Even when others do, we don't compromise. Because if we compromise, then we will face, we will face the, the discipline or the judgment of Jesus. This is, what he, this is what he says in verse 16. He says, Therefore repent. Because if you don't, I'm going to come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of, of Jesus' mouth here is a picture of, of judgment. It's a picture of if if they are in Christ, a picture of his discipline, his loving discipline to bring them back. But if they're not in Christ, a picture of judgment, words of judgment that they will face, just like in the story of Balaam and Balak, how actually thousands of the people of Israel died of a plague that God allowed into their, or he sent into their land. So it's just like, that it seems harsh. It's like, God what, but God disciplines those he loves. He gets our attention. He draws us back. He wants us to keep in step with him. so don't compromise when you face spiritual opposition. Don't compromise when you're pressured by the culture. Don't compromise even when others do. And then finally, don't compromise because or by enjoying greater intimacy with Christ. Don't compromise by enjoying intimate friendship with Jesus Christ. And in spite of and in spite of all the difficulty they're facing, in spite of the spiritual opposition, in spite of the pressure from the culture, in spite of some even in their own family that are deviating from God's plans. Jesus says, you can be faithful. You can be faithful, and you can be faithful because you are walking closely with me. Verse 17, to the one... To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. So, so, so who is it the one that conquers? Well, let's just back up for a moment. Verse 16, the one who repents. You've heard it so many times. Repentance just means to to be living one way in a direction that's off course from what God wants and it's correcting back. It's turning back to to God's intentions. It's, It's moving the sails back in line with the wind of the Holy Spirit, the clear teaching of the word of God. That's what repentance is. That's the one that conquers, the one that keeps coming back, getting back to our first love, being faithful to Christ. And it's described in verse 13 as well. Even though they dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. So so the one who conquers is, again, the one who is persevering, the one who is holding fast, the one that is not denying the name of Christ, but the one who is honoring the name of Christ, even if that means that person's death. That's the one who conquers. And what does the one who conquers receive? He receives some really, really rich blessings. Jesus says, I will give that one, hidden manna. What was manna? Manna was given to the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness as they were moving toward the promised land. They had no food. They were hungry. God sends down bread from heaven. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the true manna sent from heaven. There's provision from heaven. God through Jesus, there's satisfaction from God through Jesus as we keep coming to him, as we keep opening, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Redemption, Hill, do you know what will happen when we really get back to our first love? Do you understand when we're really filled with the Holy Spirit with a no compromise kind of attitude and God has his way with us? The city of Boston will will feel the power of God through us. Not because we're special, but because God is special. God is powerful. Hidden manna and, yes, a stone. I love this, a stone. Like, what's a stone? Scholars disagree, but perhaps it's this uh, symbol of an invitation that at times when a feast was given, a stone was given with a person's name on it so it would be like an entrance ticket into the feast, And Jesus says, I have a stone for you. And this stone just doesn't have your name on it. It actually has a name that no one will ever know except you. That kind of intimacy with Christ. How could you reject this God? How could you not want more of him every single day? Oh God, help us want you like you want us. Help us want more intimacy with you because you love us like no one else can love us. Thank you, God. That you have a name for us. Such an intimate identity. This shows God. This shows how much you love us. And so I just want to ask, I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to keep praying, but I just want to ask you how will you cultivate intimacy? How will, you, how will you seek to be to get back to your first love? To be faithful, to not compromise. This is so real. It's so true. That's why I get so passionate. It's not a show. I didn't plan. I was looking like on my notes. Like, hey, fall on your knees. It's because God loves us as much, and it's overwhelming when we see Him for who He is. So let's draw near. Let's draw near to Him. Let's seek him with everything we've got. Let's pray. God, thank you. God, thank you that you, in spite of how we so often fail you and how often we compromise, Lord, that you give us that invitation again and again and again to turn back, to recorrect the the direction, the degrees of where we've set our sails so that we can get back in line with your vision for our lives and your vision for this world. And so God, I pray, I pray even in a week where uh, we're, we're, we're exposing who our enemy is and what he's about, Lord, that we are are indwelt by your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who is the stronger man than Satan, who has the greater sword, and that we now have power to live for you, Lord. I pray that you would take us into a new place of taking ground in Jesus' name for the kingdom of light in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our city. Lord, help us to believe what we've heard today. Help us just to keep coming back, to remember, to meditate on all of who you are and all that you've revealed to us. God, so that you would receive honor, so that people would see as we see you that your face is shining like the sun in full strength. This is all about you. Every good thing in our lives, every good thing that you're doing in our church, God, thank you for all of it. It's all a gift from your hand. We declare that today. We claim that. And we're going to sing about it right now, that your blessings would fall on us, that you would rain down showers upon showers upon showers, you who give the Holy Spirit without measure, that you would just, we would just receive, that we would just walk out and feel your rain hitting us again and again and again. Thank you, Father. We pray this in the name of Christ.